This is the Glowing Older Podcast, hosted and produced by Nancy Griffin and Catherine Lord. We curate this podcast to feature leaders in the business of aging well, who provide services and products that help us all glow older. Learn more about us and our coaching work at glowingolder.com. Hello, and welcome to the Glowing Older Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Lord, and I am so excited to be here today with M.T. Connolly, author of The Measure of Our Age, leading national expert on elder justice, MacArthur Genius Grantee, as well as the architect of the Federal Elder Justice Act, founder of the Department of Justice's Elder Justice Initiative, and lead author of the Elder Justice Roadmap, Shaping Federal, State, and Local Research, Policy, and Practice. Oh my goodness, I could keep going, but in the interest of time, MT, what an honor to have you and welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Catherine. So we're going to dive right in. I'd love for you to share with our listeners about your background. Uh, Sure. I think at the most fundamental level, I'm the daughter of a mother who saw humanity in really inhumane places, in in prisons and in old, the way that psych hospitals used to be. Um, And that sent me toward the law because I wanted to have at my disposal, or I wanted to learn how to use, I guess, levers of change like what are what kind of levers do we have in society to change things so i thought the law would be a pretty good instrument i ended up at the department of justice where the that lever is primarily used in prosecution um and then um working at the senate with um on the elder justice act and what i found was that the problems i was seeing in aging um, were not readily fixable, even with a tool as powerful as the law. And so then I, you know, we had with the Elder Justice Act, we had um, we had members of Congress, very powerful members of Congress in both parties, really, you know, as co-sponsors. So we thought, oh, it's going to sail right through and there'll be plenty of funding. It eventually was enacted with the Affordable Care Act, but with very little funding, really. And it, it, with the exception of one little bubble of funding um, because of COVID relief monies, it has not been well-funded. And so that taught me an important lesson. Um, and... A political philosopher friend of mine said, you know, big problems require language. Um, And that really stuck with me um, and was what caused me to start writing about these issues, because we need a language to conceptualize the issues, to debate about them, to plan, and ultimately to do something about change. And so what I've tried to do with my book is to um, look at a wide range of issues, you know, in terms of how we underestimate aging, both on the hard side and on the good side, um, and give us a more robust language to talk about these issues, both critically and analytically, and also a more generous language to talk about aging. Um, Because in the end, it's this extraordinary gift of time that we have. So I think there's a lot we can do to improve it. I agree. And I have to say, I chose not to wear mascara this morning because I was finishing your book, which had me in tears. And uh, I I found your book so profound 
And it's so clear that you have the lens of the legal mind that you are. And yet the story of the book reads so beautifully. And that's how I left it with this gift of aging. And yes, there's a lot of murky stuff that we've got to work on in the, in the aging industry, but what a, what a beautiful illustration of the aging landscape, especially in this country. So thank you, first of all, for your amazing contributions from the legal perspective, but this translation into the storytelling of, of what we are looking at with aging. It's, it's really, really impactful. Well, thank you so much for that. I, that was what I was trying to do. Um, And I think at the most fundamental level, telling the stories of aging, the hard ones and the beautiful ones is what we need to do more of as a country. So thanks. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I'm in, as our listeners now know, in the sandwich generation, I have parents who are in their mid seventies. And then I also have uh, a young son. So I have the the parents and in-laws that I'm navigating care with, but then also uh, caring for these little ones at home. So um, recently my parents, it, it came up how they are struggling in their independent living community, which they thought they had done a really great job in selecting, but at this point <laughs> feel that they have been duped at what was marketed. And you speak a lot about this in your book. Um, so I want to ask, how can older adults ask the right questions and be aware of potentially financial scams in crisis decision-making? Well, first, I just want to acknowledge that I don't know how you have time for this podcast because you are a busy <laughs> person to be reading books and doing podcasts along with um, being in the sandwich generation. And I'm sorry about what happened with your parents. Um, so it's a hard question, as you know. Uh, I think there the contracts that you sign um, when you sign up for um, a facility or, um, a, you know, a, a senior housing kind of arrangement. Those are complex contracts. And I would recommend getting the help of a lawyer to look at it, a knowledgeable person, an elder law attorney or um, a legal services attorney. Um, the long-term care ombudsman program, which is free nationwide, um, they're mostly not doctors, but they also are very aware of some of the issues in long-term care and what people might want to look out for, you know, whether, for example, you can be kicked out or what is included Mm -hmm. in a particular price or, you know, what the, what the limits of care are. Um, So I think that's, that's another potential resource. Um, There are also in some communities, people called care managers or care coordinators who can be very knowledgeable about the local resources and what the reputations are and what some of the pros and cons are. Generally, care managers or coordinators cost money, but, um, you know, but it might be worth it it, to not end up in the kind of position that your parents are in. Um, There are also what are called AAAs or area agencies on aging um which can be in some communities tremendously helpful hubs for mm-hmm. knowledge or resources or whatever else about about aging issues um but as you point out even with best intentions sometimes it doesn't work out so well and there i think 
you know, there, there's a whole group of lawyers um, who focus on consumer protection issues. And I really think that we need to engage that group more in terms of long-term care issues, because a lot of people go into it really trying hard, but are still unhappy with the results. And so we need better protection for consumers. I completely agree. And two of the things that have come out of my own experience, but also in talking with experts like yourself, making these decisions or starting to talk about them early helps because then you have time to navigate all of these resources you've mentioned, uh, which would be hard to do if you're at a crisis point. And then two is still have a plan B <laughs> that you you might get into a what you think is a great place but it might not be the only option or end up being the best option for you. Exactly right. And might not be the best option as things change. You know, um, yes. uh, one person told me, you know, with, with aging, no decision ever stays made. And so you have mm. to be ready to pivot. And I really thank you for raising what is one of my main messages and I, that I, that I meant to mention, which is that, Absolutely, we should start thinking about these things in advance um, because crisis decision making is often doesn't give us the time to do the kinds of research that we won't need to do to make huge decisions. If you think about the kinds of research you do before your kid goes to college or, yeah. you know, those kinds of things, it's, you know, it's months and years of planning and there's a lot of social support for that. And here, most decisions when it comes to elder care are made um, from a crisis perspective and made reactively instead of proactively. And so I think that's one of the things as a country that it would be really helpful for us to change. Well, we've touched on this a little bit, maybe from looking at how senior living communities can offer something that maybe isn't a reality. Uh, not all of them, of course, but um, I want to dig into the term elder abuse. And certainly people may have heard the term, but may not be familiar with all of the ways that this can present. So can you share some of the lesser known or lesser recognized presentations of elder abuse and perhaps offer some ways that adults could protect themselves uh, from abuse? Sure. Um, maybe what I'll do is start with what is probably the most common. The data are a little bit um, all over the place here, but um, financial exploitation, which people have generally heard about, although it it takes a lot of different forms. Um, you know, arguably what you're talking about with your parents or, you know, with people who feel like they've been duped by a particular facility, that is a form of financial exploitation. If you are promised something, you pay for it and you don't get it. Right. Um, so there are also scams. You know, scammers are everywhere trying to target older people. Um, there are also trusted people in older, you know, in older adults' lives, um, family, friends, sometimes professionals who take advantage of them. Um, and then um, there's also this kind of softer way that um, that that gets not very much attention, which are these well established, respected institutions, whether, you know, our cultural institutions or universities that are really doing a pretty aggressive fundraising with people later in life, sometimes when people have um, declining financial capacity or, you know, ability to sort of make decisions about whether maybe they need those funds to take care of themselves and for 
other reasons for housing or care or whatever. So I think that's a very wide expanse of, um, you know, financial exploitation can take a lot of different forms. Um, then there's neglect, and we have talked about it. We It gets a lot of attention in facility settings um, mm-hmm. where generally it's because of understaffing and because money is going other places. Um, but also um, neglect can happen in at home and where you have caregivers, either familial or paid, who are not providing adequate care. And that can be really serious because a lot of people get isolated in old age. And that is actually, that points to one of the solutions, which is that um, people uh, should not get isolated. Protecting yourself, uh, one of the primary ways to protect yourself is th- by staying connected um, mm-hmm. and um, and avoiding isolation, either oneself or, you know, in a dyad with, a, with an older person and a caregiver. So that is, um, that's really important. Um, And then there is sometimes, unfortunately, also abuse, um, either verbal abuse or physical abuse. And I don't know whether this was what you were alluding to, but verbal abuse doesn't get um, doesn't get the attention it deserves. It can be tremendously damaging to an older person um, and actually to anybody. And there is data suggesting that it's as damaging as physical abuse is. So I think we need to pay more attention. And for a lot of people, it doesn't even register as that's abuse. It's just like, oh, they get mad. Um, But it can be very, very damaging. Um, In terms of um, in terms of prevention, going back to what you said, plan, plan, plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about things in advance. Think about who you trust. Put in place the kinds of things you know, the kinds of instruments that you need. So for example, a power of attorney for either healthcare decisions or financial decisions, um, and really think hard about who you trust because somebody that you love and have a lot of sympathy for might not be the best person to be making those kinds of decisions. Um, And then um, making those decisions clear and putting in a certain level of, you know, oversight or just that it, you know, that people know what you want. Um, and then, as I was saying, the you know that the connection piece. I think staying connected, having a sense of purpose in life, um, having a good health team. For example, a good geriatrician, I think, is worth its weight in gold. Having a good geriatric team um, because they are the data suggests that having good health care and appropriate elder care as you get older um, also helps you stay healthier and independent longer. So I think, you know, not to despair, there's a lot you can do and think about it in advance. Absolutely. And, and I, I read this in your, your book and it came to me as you were talking about, um, geriatric care, which I think a lot of people don't know about. And, and there was one example that I heard recently about, uh, in, in prescriptions and how, as you age, your body absorbs things differently. I mean, this makes sense in retrospect, but I hadn't thought about it before that, okay, the medication and the amount that you were taking when you were 40 isn't the same that you need when you're 80. And if you're not seeing a specialist who really understands what your body is doing as you age, just as if we're looking at kids with pediatricians, they specialize in how the body works at that age. So what a gift to to find those kinds of resources. Exactly right. And, and as you say, bodies change the 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 
the saying is that kids aren't just small adults, which is why we have the specialty of pediatrics. But in this, in that same way, older people are not just, as Laura Mosqueda, the geriatrician I write about, says, older people aren't just wrinkled adults, right? <laughs> we metabolize drugs differently. Yes. There are illnesses present in different ways, and it requires somebody who has expertise. Because a lot of times what happens with older adults, as I have written about too, is a phenomenon called polypharmacy. Lots of different doctors are prescribing one med after the next without really taking stock of how those meds are going to interact with one another, how they're metabolized. And then sometimes what happens is they suddenly start deprescribing, which is a good idea, but you need to know what you're doing in the deprescribing too, because there can be withdrawal symptoms and all kinds of other stuff. So it's really, really important to be um, under the care of somebody who knows what they're doing. Period. Yes. <laughs> strong, <laughs> strong, yeah. strong agree. Um, you alluded to this a little bit in our discussion about uh, verbal abuse and how maybe this isn't as well recognized because sort of how we how we treat elders in our community and the and the kinds of words and language that we use with them certainly there are some roots in ageism. And so I'd love for you to help us identify some structural norms that exist right now that are ageist, negative or diminishing and hindering our ability to see elderhood in the way we should. That's such a great question. Um, and I love that you used the word elderhood, which is Louise, the title of Louise Aronson's wonderful book. Um, so. I, you know, the place where I like to start with ageism is when we look at ourselves and that we have this perspective on aging that is largely not, you know, yourselves in this podcast excluded, but, you know, largely built on and fear and sometimes disgust as a society. We can feel it viscerally. We are terrified of, you know, our bodies changing and our minds changing. And so what that does is it we leave with fear then. And that is not our strongest foot um, or, the, or the one that allows for the greatest potential. Um, and one of the problems with ageism, I think, is that as it is reflected back at us through our institutions, it compounds the negative effect. And so let's just, you know, if we think about the institutions that we have around aging, like we were just talking about geriatrics, right? Last year, fewer than half of geriatrics fellowships were filled, um, mm. whereas in other specialties in medicine, you know, that that that's not how it goes. And why is that? I think that is a reflection of our ageism. Um, similarly, if we look at our long-term care system, which can't even really be called a system because essentially there is no long-term care insurance, right? We have, it, Medicare doesn't cover it. Um, and most private health plans don't cover it. And so essentially you have to, you know, you either have to be able to afford it and it can be very, very expensive, or it's, you have to rely on Medicaid, which is a program for the poor. Um, another reflection, I think, of our systemic ageism is that when you think about the options that we have um, in terms of aging uh, housing, elder senior housing or by whatever name, um, largely people either stay at home alone or are in segregated settings with other older people. 
Now, those can be really rich communities and that can be really wonderful, but there, but we don't really take stock of the loss of having more intergenerational opportunities um, in terms of living and interacting. And so I think there are there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here in terms of ways that we can do better to have more intergenerational life in our communities. There's something called age-friendly communities. There are a whole bunch of different options that I write about in, in, in a couple of the different chapters. Um, and I think just one other example that bears mention is the way we organize work in this country. You know, you work, work, work at about 100 miles an hour, and then suddenly you turn 65 or 70 or whatever, and then you retire and you fall off a cliff. And, you you know, and generally there isn't really good social support for kind of you know, for meaningful activity and or work once we retire, even though a lot of people then still have two or three decades of life. And right. so that is actually we lose the potential of older people to contribute to society. And we also, that structure doesn't account sufficiently for the need human beings have to have purpose in their lives in terms of how we spend our time. So there's a lot more that we could do to create, a, I think, a more positive world if we could let go of some of these ageist infused norms. I keep thinking about, you know, I dropped my son off at daycare this morning. It's like, okay, he can barely speak. He wears diapers. Like what, what exactly is he contributing in the world at this point? But there's so many things for him to do. We have lots of things for people under two years old to do. And there's no other section of time that could be 30 years where we would say, eh, you're not working anymore. So we're just going to put you aside as we do with older adults. We would never say that to a child. Um, like, oh, just because you're not crunching numbers at your job doesn't mean you're not supposed to be a part of this enriched society. And so we do this exactly for children right. and yet we don't do it for, for people for 30 years potentially of their lives. I know, it's just, it's just nuts. I mean, one of the things I really loved in learning more about this and doing the research on it is, you know, for co-location. For example, if you co-locate a childcare center with an assisted living facility, there's yeah. so much that both generations can give to one another. Even people who have some cognitive impairment can read a kid a book or look at a picture book or yes. snuggle or, you know, whatever. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of potential that is lost that I think if we just tweak how we do things, we could deploy some of that much more effectively. We really could. We really could. We haven't touched on this yet. However, you speak to this really thoroughly in your book about caregiving and unpaid caregiving and the $500 billion industry that it is. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on caregiving and then also what advice could you give to caregivers to prevent them from giving to the point of their own demise when caring for aging loved ones? Great. It's such an important question. Um, so as you allude to, we've got about 50 million informal caregivers. That is mostly family, mostly unpaid, almost always unsupported and often really isolated. And we do a really bad job of supporting caregivers. 
um, even though we rely on them in our families, as a society, with as health plans, et cetera. Um, so we need to do a much better job um, to support caregivers. Um, and in families, I think what we need to do is talk about it in advance again, because what ends up happening is that often, too often caregivers, you know, we think, oh, that sister is going to do it and I can wash my hands of it. And no, it should be a team sport, not a solo endeavor. And so for caregivers, I think ask, learning to ask for help, not taking it all on alone, building in respite, that is, you know, time off and uh, structurally making sure that that is part of the caregiving, um, learning what kinds of community resources there are, because sometimes there's a senior center or adult daycare, there are other paid caregivers coming into the home or other friends and family coming into the home to help. You know, so there there are and there are increasingly now um, companies that offer this kind of thing and health plans um, and programs realizing that caregivers need more help. But it's very idiosyncratic and we need to make this the way that we operate as a society. So, um, and caregivers need to have the language to say, I am in over my head. I can't do more. I need help. Yes. And you have a great story in your book about someone who used a, was it index card post-it note that said, help me. <laughs> so, help me. I am overwhelmed. I'm and the overwhelmed. Doctor, right. And the doctor who knew about this said, oh my God, I missed it. And this yeah. person she was so together that I missed it. And I, and then she, you know, rallied the resources. So asking for help is absolutely critical. And I included that story because I feel like she's speaking for a whole generation of people whose cries for help are often not being heard. Yes. And a great reminder that for those caregivers in our lives that we might not notice, you may think, oh, I'll know when mom is burned out. You might not you might not see it. She might be hiding it as she's caregiving. So it's important for us as part of the ecosystem to, to check in on caregivers. Uh, exactly right. As well. Yes. We've said plan a lot in our conversation. How can we encourage people to plan early for their third act? You know, it's such a great question. And I think Conversations like this one are really important also to make it more the norm in society. And here, one of the things that really struck me was the designated drive, the story of the designated driver program, which came from Scandinavia. It was a norm in Scandinavia. And the people who were really promoting it went to Hollywood and got different shows like Cheers to talk about designated drivers, to just kind of slip it in. And so I think one of the things that we need to do um, aging society is to think about opportunities to change norms. And that if we infuse more shows, you know, that this is us, the show This Is Us, mm -hmm portrayed dementia. So if we start thinking about third acts and preparing for third acts, and what are you going to do with yours? And what, what am I going to do with mine? And show it in the culture and in, um, you know, in our Netflix and Hulu shows. I think that there is a way to sometimes circumvent meaning, you know, uh, movement building and that it, there are a lot of opportunities here, but I think we need to start talking about it in our personal lives in our reading groups with our friends and to push our 
you know, the media that we consume to portray the various options in a more robust way. Incredible. That's exactly right. And even recently, some friends and I have been talking about the the new Netflix series about the blue zones and even just our commentary about looking, seeing these beautiful older adults portrayed and their pride in their age, their pride in their birthday celebrations when they're 90, 95, 96 and of their wrinkles and how how incredibly uh, heartwarming it is to see those stories. So more of that in the world. Totally agree. And shifting the frame to say, this is an extraordinary gift that we get to live longer and that the people we love, we have more time with the people we love. I mean, it's just such an extraordinary thing that, and we forget to appreciate it. And in that, I will say was the most amazing thing about writing this book um, was doing the research on meaning making and how we can really more fully inhabit and appreciate and make meaning of that time we have. And that's true whether at any age and whether we're an older person or a caregiver or anybody else, but to keep the frame on that as opposed to on the fear and the denial and the, you know, the negative things, because it is extraordinary and there are struggles. It's not perfect. There are (laughs) going to be struggles, but to remember that it's also sacred. Mm, Beautiful. And with that, MT, what gets you most excited these days? Well, I think there are three things. Um, One of them is what I just said, that this meaning making, the power of making meaning and of, you know, cultivating that. And I, I dedicated the last chapter to that, as you know, that that's in everyone's control. We can all do that no matter where we are in life. So I think that's one thing that excites me. The second thing is that there is increased discussion about aging in the culture. It's pretty fragmented, which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring all the different threads together in the book so that kind of, a, you know, weave them together to into something that is a little bit more integrated um and the, because there is so much more that we can do um and then there is a little a program that i helped to build you know after sort of the failures or the disappointments i should say not a failure but it, you know sort of the disappointment of the elder justice act i've been trying to build more hopeful and evidence-based programs at the local level. And so a a group of colleagues and I have built a program in Maine that is now spreading to other, um, to other places that is, that the, you know, the evidence shows it's very successful because what we did was ask older people in trouble what do you want? What do you need? And if that's help for your son or granddaughter who have some trouble, you know, what can we do to help you, to help the people you love? And then how do we help restore relationships between and among the, you know, the people in your life? Because that's what older people often want. They don't want you know, they don't want retribution. They want restoration and repair of relationships mostly. And so I think it goes back to old age being this time where we're trying to integrate all the different parts of our lives. um, And what is important to us might not be the same thing that was important to us earlier in life and to recognize that and to honor it. So that is 
those are the things that are exciting me because I think that there are there's a lot of low hanging fruit. There's so many better ways that we can do things um, if we if we recognize it. And that's really why I wrote the book to give people, you know, one way to say it is news you can use or stories you can use <laughs> examples of how you get into trouble and how you stay out of trouble and how you can more richly inhabit this time that we have. Well, it is abundantly clear your passion and your love and very much your expertise in your amazing book. Thank you so much, M.T. Connolly. I, I have left your book and this conversation with such a sense of promise that that we can make change. And there is such a gift waiting for, for anyone who will receive it in aging. Thank you so much, Catherine, to you and to Nancy and for you know, taking the time to talk with me and for the podcast in general. Thanks so much. You have been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast. For more information about our planning and coaching services, visit glowingolder.com.